0: What we will use today to sort of guide our discussion are the first three verses here in chapter four. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. This is our fifth Sunday looking at the matter of ambition. But even before we start, I want to correct the horrible mistake I made last week in the sermon when I was referring to something that Martin Luther had said, something quite controversial, where he said, sin boldly and confess boldly. But if you remember, I said, sin greatly and confess greatly, which is what he said was controversial enough without me making it wrong. So, get that out of the way. Okay, to review a bit. We've been looking at ambition after we looked at the matter of calling in the light of creation, fall, and redemption. In other words, what ambition was like in creation when God first made the world, what God intended ambition to be in a perfect world, and what God intended for those made in His image. That's creation. Then what happened to ambition due to the fall when Adam and Eve rebelled against the Creator and His intents, when the Creator cast them from His presence, and when the human race sought to live on its own apart from the Creator. And then in Redemption, what is ambition in a world that is being redeemed? When Jesus came into the world, when Jesus showed us what it meant to be human, when those who follow Jesus seek to live as God intends. We have seen, we saw last week, that in creation the purpose of ambition can be summarized in one word, and that is glory. Glory. I take it as a given that the creation has the purpose of revealing the glory of God. But this isn't simply in creation. Even in the fallen world, this is true. In Psalm 19, how clearly the sky reveals God's glory, how plainly it shows what he has done. And as those who are made in his image, we are a part of creation. Our purpose is to reveal the glory of God. That is why we were created. And in Eden, prior to the fall, prior to the sin of Adam and Eve, this was the purpose of humanity, of Adam and Eve. They had the ambition to reveal the glory of God. We saw last week that when it comes to ambition, we see at least three stages. That first of all, it perceives the true value of something, that something has value. Then it prizes that which is perceived as having value and then ultimately it pursues that because it has value. So the first step is to say, I perceive that this has value, and then you prize it because it has value, and then ultimately ambition drives you to pursue it. This is where we find the effort and the willingness to do whatever is necessary to achieve or accomplish something. In a fallen world, however, ambition has been twisted, and its direction, its purpose has been changed Rather than seeking to bring glory to God, humans seek glory for themselves. In terms of what is perceived as having value, per- prized as having value, and pursued, it is the glory of human beings. We now have redefined glory. And this is generally what we think of when we think of ambition. This is what we find in the New Testament referred to as selfish ambition. Let me just repeat what I've said before. It is important for us to understand that ambition is not wrong in and of itself. And that's why we begin in creation, because if we only look at what we see in the fallen world, then we might be tempted to say ambition is wrong and we need to get rid of it. But ambition was there in a perfect world. Now that it's been twisted, the answer is not to get rid of it, but the answer is for it to be redeemed. Last Sunday, we spent much of our time looking at ambition in a fallen world, and I don't want to retrace my steps there, but I do want to mention one aspect. In our pursuit of glory, not God's glory, but our own, in which it usually falls short of whatever it was that we intended, we ended up being either depressed or we began to despair. And because we don't want to live in that type of world, what we do is we lower the standard. We lower the standard for which we are shooting for so that we know that we have a fair chance of attaining that goal. David Harvey has written a book called Rescuing Ambition, and he puts it this way. Live a holy life? Impossible. How about a balanced and reasonably moral one? Done. Love God and others wholeheartedly? Forget it. How about a head nod to God and tolerance toward others? Done. Obey God's word as the rule of my life? It's too restrictive. How about leafing through it to find words that make me feel better about myself? Done. Last week after church, he and I were driving to lunch and I had the radio on and a song by Jim Blossoms came on, 20 years old. Uh, called Hey Jealousy, and among its lyrics, if you don't expect too much from me, you might not be let down. And I said to Gia, well, that's certainly lowering the bar, isn't it? Uh, don't expect too much, and even with the bar lowered, don't, I might not get as, as low as you've lowered it, I might not get there. But our failure to achieve greatness, what God intends, is far more dangerous than we might think. Because we change the standard set by the Creator, who has made us in His image, who has made us to be ambitious, because of sin and because of the fall, deeply embedded in us is the desire to seek our own glory, to install ourselves as Lord over all, to be worshipped, to have fame and glory. But as we saw last week, in seeking and pursuing our own glory, we fall tragically short of the greatness of the glory of God. We read it today in our prayer of confession. We have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If we could sum up ambition in a fallen world, we could say that our ambition leads to a dangerous place. We place ourselves in the path of God's wrath because we seek our own, our own glory and not his. And then redemption. We began this last week that any discussion of redemption must begin with the person of Jesus. Described by the writer of the letter to the Hebrews, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. That is to say that God's glory, his honor, his esteem, his perfection, his incomprehensible value, which is to be perceived, prized, and then pursued, are embedded in flesh and blood. We see them in the person of Jesus. This is where God's glory is seen. To love the glory of God means to love the person of Jesus. And to love Jesus means that we value him more than anything else. This is the defining characteristic of Christian conversion, that we love Jesus as our Savior and we want to live for his glory. But there's something else we need to consider, that Jesus is not only the glory of God, he also came to bring glory to God. And it is from Jesus that we learn the nature of redeemed ambition, what God wants our ambition to be. We saw last Sunday that Jesus rescues the motive of ambition, he rescues the obedience of ambition, and he rescues the joy of ambition. Just to review briefly, with regard to the motive of ambition, apart from the work of God's grace in our lives, our quest for glory, even if it is God's glory, is usually we are seeking for approval. We want people to say, you're doing a good job. In Jesus, our search for approval is over, or it should be. Because in Jesus, we are redeemed. I'm reminded of what Dennis Miller said in one of his routines about one of his kids at the age of two or three was sort of acting cute and you know, just dancing around, and, and, and Dennis said, relax, relax, you got the job. You know, as much as to say, you know, we're going to keep you. And as God's children, I think oftentimes our activities are an attempt to get God's approval, and in Jesus, we are God's people. We don't do something so that God will approve of us. We already have that in Jesus Instead of wondering what others think, we can strike out boldly, and I think this is where the Martin Luther quote came in, with ambition to walk in our callings to the glory of God. Instead of fearing that we will fall short of our goals, we will, or that God will somehow be displeased with us for our imperfections, we can and we should be ambitious. It is in Jesus that the motive for ambition is rescued. I don't do things to get God's approval. I already have that in His Son. With regard to the obedience of ambition, in Jesus we see the perfect obedience. We see the one who has redeemed us, is redeeming us from falling short of the glory of God. And He is the one who by the power of the Spirit enables us, He empowers us to be obedient. We are to be ambitiously obedient knowing that in fact we may face the fact that our obedience will be misunderstood or that our obedience will be ignored or ultimately rejected. And then lastly, with regard to the joy of ambition, oftentimes in our attempts to make ourselves great, selfish ambition makes us small. In Jesus, we find the way to experience the true joy of ambition. We no longer live ambitiously for approval. We are to act ambitiously because we have approval. And the difference between the two? In the first, we have disillusionment because we're trying to get people to like us and to approve of us. In the second, we should be inspired because we have God's approval, therefore we can be ambitious. Do you want to find joy in your life? Be ambitious. Let's continue with the thinking or looking at the matter of ambition in a redeemed world. Before we look at ambition and redemption, I think we need to stop a moment and think or rethink redemption. What is redemption about? I would argue, and in part this is why the text today, that redemption is primarily about who we are not what we do or accomplish. I think that we tend to focus more on action rather than on being. Like the rich young ruler, even though we understand that we are saved by grace, we want to ask, what must I do? That's how we see calling, that's how we see ambition. When it comes to the matter of ambition, we may think in terms of doing rather than being. In coming to our text today in Ephesians 4, we may read it in terms of doing rather than in terms of being. But I read it as Paul speaking of qualities like humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Ambition begins with knowing who we are in Jesus Christ, not what it may be that he wants us to do. There are things he wants us to do, but that does not define us. What defines us is who we are, that we are God's people in Jesus Christ. In redemption, God is seeking to change us into the image of his Son. Do you hear that? God is seeking to change us into the image of his Son, who we are. What we do will flow from that. But oftentimes I think we put the cart before the horse and we get it all mixed up. God is seeking to change who we are. And a part of the way that he does this is by shaping our ambition, redeeming our ambition. See, ambition in the redeemed world is not a product. It isn't something that is packaged that God hands us. Like when you graduate from school and you get a diploma and they shake your hand and there it is. That is not what redeemed ambition is. God is in the process of redeeming our ambition. And again, remember that the solution to our problem is not to get rid of ambition. And many Christians before us have done precisely that. They see ambition in a fallen world as something that is ugly. I wouldn't disagree. But the answer is not to get rid of it, but that it needs to be reshaped and redeemed. One of my concerns for this series, and we're now five weeks into the series, is that, is that you might think I'm handing you all a package, a biblical understanding of calling, so you can figure out what your calling is, you know, the gifts that God has given you, the inclinations that God has given you, so you can, you can choose the right calling, and then a biblical understanding of ambition, so that now you have the drive to walk in your callings, to have a sense of purpose and then off you go to a successful Christian life. Because Damon has told you about calling, and he's told you about ambition, and now you can live your life and everything will be wonderful. Please understand that in redemption, God is redeeming. He is in the process of redeeming and reshaping us, and that includes our ambition. I lean heavily here on Dave Harvey and his book, Rescuing Ambition let me suggest to you ways in which God is shaping or reshaping our ambition. At least three ways. The first we will call ambition delayed. To be human is to have delayed ambitions because we live in a fallen world. To be a child of God is to have delayed ambitions. We live in a world in which we and creation are being redeemed. Think back through scripture. Look at the story of God's people. And consider the people of God who had to wait. Abraham and Sarah were promised a child of their own, but they had to wait 25 years for Isaac. Joseph had a dream that his brothers would bow down before him, but it was more than 20 years before that, in fact, took place. Moses thought that he was the one to deliver his people, and indeed he was, but he committed a murder in his impatience, and he had to wait 40 years before he became Israel's deliverer. David was anointed king by Samuel, but had to wait more than a decade, oftentimes running and hiding for his life, before he became king. What Zib read to us today from Acts chapter 9, Paul had a dramatic experience On the road to Damascus. Many of us would almost envy, would almost covet such an experience. He was told that he would be the apostle to the Gentiles. But it was 14 years before Barnabas went up to Tarsus and got Paul and brought him to Antioch, and Paul began his ministry as the apostle to the Gentiles. This is God's way of doing things. It's not cruel, it's not meanness. It is a part of refining and rescuing our ambition. How we live in the meantime I think is important and it significantly shapes who we become. Because remember, redemption is primarily about who we are, who we are becoming more than what we do. While we are waiting, God wants to teach us and he wants us To learn to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, what we see here in Ephesians chapter 4. But waiting is not a popular idea, not a popular word, and yet it is a tool that God often uses. Consider, by the way, if you get the chance, how many times in scripture we are told to wait Psalm 27, verse 14. Wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart, and wait for the Lord. Psalm 37, verse 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret when men succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. In Hosea 12:6, But you must return to your God, maintain love and justice, and wait for your God always. And this is simply a matter of waiting we are to wait in faith in Isaiah 64 since ancient times no one has heard no ear has perceived no eye has seen any god besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him But let's understand something that waiting is not a bus stop where we just simply sit there and fold our hands and do nothing while we are waiting We are to keep walking as we wait And we wait as we walk. What does waiting do? Let me suggest to you several things. First of all, it purifies our ambitions. We may be tempted to think if we have to wait that our ambitions will fade away and and ultimately disappear. And indeed that may happen. But I think not to those ambitions that are God-given. God purifies our ambitions by delaying their fulfillment. The rough edges, if you wish, are smoothed as God works in our lives. Secondly, waiting cultivates patience. Patience is difficult. As Dave Harvey writes, if you're like me, you believe patience is a virtue, you just don't want to have to wait for it. Impatience is the natural human state, I'm convinced. But consider this, your impatience may cause you to replace God's schedule with your own. And then ambition... Redeemed ambition is perverted into demands, that we demand certain things from God. God has a rescue plan for our ambition. It's called waiting. And we should remember what we read in Lamentations 3.25. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. The third thing that waiting does, it redefines our definition of productivity. In our culture, time is money, so speed is essential. And so we would say we want something to happen quickly, and we want it to happen efficiently. Success in our culture is oftentimes defined in terms of how productive we are. In fact, we may tend to see ourselves in the light of whether we are productive or unproductive. Therefore, if we're successful or unsuccessful, God defines productivity quite differently. He sees productivity in terms of transformation in who we are becoming. Remember, it's about who we are, who we are becoming, not what we do. We define productivity in terms of what we do. God sees it in terms of what we are becoming or who we are becoming. Waiting is oftentimes God's reorientation program aimed at our definition of success. He lovingly empties our misguided preoccupations with accomplishment and fills it with the ambition to know him and be like him. Perhaps by God's grace in the process of waiting, we may come to see that he alone is omnipotent, not us. That he alone is omnicompetent, not us, and that he alone exists without any need for rest. Waiting reworks our definition of productivity, and it teaches us, if we would learn, to connect our agenda not to personal achievement, but to God's glory. And then, in the words of Jesus, we can bear fruit. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Again, John chapter 15 is a dangerous chapter in our culture because most people see it in terms of productivity, being fruitful. Jesus sees it in terms of being transformed and becoming like him. So that is ambition delayed. Quickly, ambition developed. This is the second way in which God redeems ambition. God loves ambition. If you doubt it, look at Genesis chapter 1, in which he said to Adam and Eve, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Rule over the earth. Subdue it. As John was mentioning to us, a woman who said, Can you imagine Adam and Eve staring at the planet and saying, What? We are going to subdue this planet? God loves ambition. It brings him glory as he works through our desires to fulfill his purposes. God doesn't need us, let's be clear about that. But amazingly, he does use us. And to position us to be fruitful, he works in our lives, turning our desires toward his ends and developing our ambitions in accordance with his will. In the process, he is redeeming us we are becoming what God declared us to be in Jesus Christ. However, a good ambition becomes a selfish ambition when it is only ambition. In the Bible, this is known as idolatry. God is gracious, though. He does not necessarily or automatically judge us in our idolatry. Rather, he seeks to rescue us from that idolatry, and he redeems that ambition. He develops our ambition. So, ambition delayed, ambition developed. The third and perhaps most painful is ambition denied. A Harvard Business Review has coined the word middle, middle sense. It's combining middle age with adolescence. Quote It's the growing phenomenon among middle aged workers to be burned out, bottlenecked, and bored. But it's much more than that. It's men and women realizing that they will never achieve certain dreams. The manager beginning to realize that he'll never be an executive. The artist confronting the limitations of gifting. The worker bored stiff while confronting the possibility that this is all there is. As the Harvard Business Review put it, like adolescence, middle, middlesense can be a time of frustration, confusion, and alienation. And like a car with no brakes and no steering wheel, many drift. And I think this goes way beyond the matter of calling and ambition. One writer put it this way, we don't realize how influential our dreams are until midlife. All of a sudden we feel cheated, conned, and stuck. What satisfied us before doesn't do it anymore. And it's much more than dissatisfaction. It is the death of certain ambitions, the burial, perhaps, of one's dreams. To be human is to have denied ambitions, because we live in a fallen world. And we need to realize that in some cases, long-term dreams are just that, they're just dreams. No one gets all that he or she wants, no one accomplishes all, or he, or all that he or she set out to do. So, to be human is to have denied emotion, uh, ambition, but to be a child of God is to have denied ambitions. Living in a world and being a person that is being redeemed. The denial of ambition is not ultimately a punishment or penalty. It is the gracious work of a loving Father defining the path for our walk. You see, as we walk through this world, God has installed fences to keep us from moving apart from what he wants. They keep us moving in the direction he wants us to. They define the path for our walk. By the way, this expression of his love isn't limited to middle age. That somehow in middle age people wake up and they see the fences. They've been there all along. When ambitions are denied the first thing that we call into question is whether or not God is in control. We lose sight of his omniscience, that he knows all things, and his omnipotence, that he's all-powerful. And then beyond that, we call into question his goodness. We fail to see how these circumstances are a reflection of God's goodness. But if we can, in fact, make the connection... It will be, make all the difference between delight and disillusionment. We need to remember and remind each other that God loves us so much that he will intentionally fence us in to keep us on his road. As we go through life with its ups and downs, its bumps and bruises, we may freely admit that we never thought our road would go in this direction. Let us be clear. We will find little or no peace in this life until we're convinced that our path is His way and that our place is His choice, fences and all. You see, fences don't simply contain us. I think we may see them that way. They also protect us. They keep us from hurtling over cliffs, even if it seems we're chasing something good. God's agenda for ambition is about shaping us so that He can use us. It's not beyond denying certain ambitions to achieve a greater good in us, and through us. You see, it's not about what we do, it's about who we are and who we are becoming by God's grace. We need to be reminded of something today, and that is God created ambition. And that in ambition, we find the potential to glorify Him and to delight ourselves to find joy as we do the things He has called us to do. Please listen to this. Ambition is so important that God undertakes a lifelong project in us forming and reshaping the ambitions that exalt Him and enthuse us. That is, that glorify Him and bring us joy. That's how important ambition is. Otherwise, I think our view of everything is that God made the world and Adam and Eve messed it up and then Jesus came and he died for us and he's going to save us and take us to heaven and that's all there is. We forget that God loves his creation and God is not only redeeming us, he is redeeming his creation as well. And let us remember that ambition is not a fallen thing that there was ambition in creation in the perfect world and now God is undertaking in each one of us in our lives the project of redeeming us and reshaping our ambition in the process by God's grace he moves to the center of our dreams and our ambitions come to the place where we want to glorify him As we cooperate with God's work of reshaping and redeeming our ambitions, what delights us no longer are indulged ambitions, what I want to do when I grow up, or even ambitions for God, what I want to do for God. What in fact will delight us is God himself. It isn't what We do, it's who we are. His people, His children. And He is in the process because of the work of Christ, by His Spirit, in reshaping us. And part of that is reshaping our ambitions. Perhaps delaying our ambitions, hopefully developing our ambitions, and maybe even in what might seem to be an act of cruelty, denying our ambitions. Because God is concerned about who we are and transforming us. And out of that will flow our actions. Let's pray together. Father living when and where we do we are deeply concerned about what drives us, what motivates us. Perhaps we feel we have a lack of motivation, a lack of drive. So as we go through the matter of ambition, perhaps we are looking for something that will light the fire under us and make us ambitious to do certain things. Help us to see by your grace that in redemption, you are redeeming us who we are, more than what we do. What we do will flow from that. You are seeking by your grace to transform us into the image of your Son. And that may mean saying no to us. It may mean causing us to wait. But may we never lose sight of the fact that you love us. That you are in control, you are all-powerful and all-knowing, and more than that, all-loving. And you put fences on our paths to protect us, but also to direct us. Help us to see that where we are is your way. And the place where we are is where you have put us. Sometimes it's easier to see this than others. I suspect when it's easier, it's simply because things are going the way we want them to. And it's difficult when things are not going the way we want them to. Help us to see that you love us. You have great ambitions for us. You are spending our entire lifetimes reshaping our ambitions. May we come to see this, and in the words of Paul, walk worthy of the calling that you have given each one of us. I thank you that we could gather today to worship you. I ask that your spirit and grace would go with us as we leave this place. May we be lights in a world of darkness in the coming days. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.